Institute. I'm delighted to uh, welcome you to this evening's uh, talk from Professor Thomas Fow um, from Duke University. Uh, Professor Fow is the Ari Alice Mary Baldwin Distinguished Professor of English um, with cross appointments, I believe, in both the Divinity School and the German department. Um, uh, and he, he's published widely on uh, many topics in philosophy, in theology, in literature um, in, from the 18th through the early 20th century, um, and has just written a book that, that we were just discussing a moment ago um, on images in theology and philosophy um, and kind of the, their relationship to us, the effect they have on us, the kind of control that they exert over us in ways that we don't necessarily think, or at least that is part of what he's gonna be speaking with, um, with us tonight about. Um, for a lecture entitled Learning to See Images in Theology and Philosophy. Um, so we'll, we'll welcome uh, Professor Fow um, uh, we'll hear from him and have time for questions until um, around nine o'clock, at which point I'll formally thank him. Um, and, and we might stick around if, if people have a few more questions um, for a minute or two after that. Um, uh, but uh, that's, that'll be the course of, uh, of our evening together this evening. So thanks to you all for joining. Thank you, Professor Fow, um, for, for joining us. And we look forward to learning more about the book and uh, some of the images that you've picked out for us. Good. Um, I'm going to use a PowerPoint uh, slide presentation, so let's keep our fingers crossed that that works. Um, does it show? Looks That's like good. it does, right? Good. Um, so, uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Nathaniel, for the invitation. And um, uh, without further ado, I'll get right to it. Um, what is an image? Here are some questions. What is an image? Do images differ from ordinary objects? And if so, how? Are there different ways of relating to images? Do they potentially grant us access to a knowledge that's otherwise unattainable, that is by discursive or conceptual means? Do images give, way, give rise to ways of seeing that differ from ordinary object perception? And if so, what is the relationship between image consciousness and perceptual consciousness, to recall a distinction by the philosopher Husserl? Finally, is an image exclusively ordered towards its sheer visibility as a picture? Or do images perhaps also serve as conduits to something essentially invisible, possibly a numinous and divine truth, such as John of Damascus, Bonaventure, and Nicholas of Cusa had argued? These are some of the questions on which I would like to touch. Let me begin with some definitions uh, and uh, key distinctions. For an initial working concept of an image, it helps us to distinguish between image and picture. How so? In what follows, I'll argue that the concept of the image, and here the Greek term icon and the Latin term imago would be in play, is not only wider in scope than that of the picture, idolon, pictura, but that images belong to a different order of being. Let us start with the more circumscribed category of a picture. Undoubtedly, the concept implies some type of material scaffolding, a canvas, wood panel, smooth stone surface, 
supply to which are temporary cicative oil paint, or for that matter, lines engraved on, on a copper plate or pixelation on a digital screen. Husserl would call this a material foundation of the picture Bildträger, image carrier. Additionally, a picture truly requires an image object, built object, a specific something that is being depicted. A dramatic scene, a landscape, human figures, a face, a plant, an emblem, or an object as simple as a tobacco pipe. I'll leave aside abstract painting, which in admittedly interesting ways would warrant further qualifications of the argument I mean to develop tonight. As such, a picture is the correlate of a perception. We perceive what is depicted, and we often do so without reminding ourselves that the scene is not real, but pictorial, that what we perceive is not the object, but its mimesis. That this should be so does not usually imply a failure on our part, but is arguably intended by a great deal of art, especially since the late 19th, 16th century. Consider how instantaneously we are absorbed into a dramatic scene by Rembrandt or by Turner or into a landscape by Bruegel or by Caspar David Friedrich or again a portrait by Hans Holbein or Franz Lehnbach. Now each picture is also at the same time a case of presentation what the German word Darstellung typically refers to, in the sense that it renders its object visible in distinctive and often highly charismatic ways. A picture usually does not aspire to bland neutrality, but to fullness. Its aim is never just to have us identify the object or person depicted, a passport photo could do that, rather the artist wishes to capture and convey the being that he or she depicts in a specific way. Seeing X always means seeing it as X1 or X2 in a specific light from a specific angle, a distance, against a carefully crafted background that often adds symbolic significance. A depiction not only presents its object, but reveals something about it. As Hans-Georg Gadamer puts it so well, in being depicted, the object undergoes, quote, an increase in being, einen Zuwachs an Sein. This tells us that each act of depiction must have originated in a specific visual experience that preceded the act of pictorialization. That is, the concrete picture always presupposes a moment of intuition or vision in which an image has revealed itself with such poignancy that we feel induced to capture this vision in pictorial form. We must have already seen in order to feel invited or indeed compelled to give formal expression to what has given itself to our gaze and to do so in pictorial or verbal form. It is this intuitive encounter with the image that Paul Cezanne has in mind when he speaks of being, quote, in the presence of a motif the motif is his phrase. For that reason, he approaches painting as the attempt to capture as accurately as possible how a particular thing manifests itself, how it gives itself to us in, uh, as an image. Conversely, in its beholder, the resulting picture will prompt both recognition of what is depicted 
or at least some degree of curiosity about it, as well as an adjustment in how the object, seen or face, could be experienced. Art helps us learn to see, less as an act of mundane perception performed at our choosing, than as being open to what is being revealed to us. Not a mundane and determinate object, but its original manifestation. Hence, as Plotinus argued long ago, our relationship to the visible ought to be contemplative rather than proprietary, receptive rather than domineering. We ought to approach the visible as the trace of something beyond vision. Hence, the soul must cultivate a form of attention that is untroubled by desire. We must learn to see and attend to the visible beauty, to visible beauty, not as an object, that will uh, an object to be claimed as a material possession or as determinate knowledge, but rather as the manifestation of a truth that will unveil itself only where the mind has been purged of all volition and desire. And here I quote Plotinus. When he sees the beauty in bodies, he must not run after them. We must know that they are images, traces, shadows, and hurry away to that which they image. For if a man runs to the image and wants to see this as if it was the reality, he will in soul, not in body, sink down into the dark depth where intellect has no delight and stay blind in Hades, consorting with shadow. Surely this is an allusion I should mention to Odysseus' failed attempt to grasp the shadow of his mother Anticlea in the underworld. Now, the ontological ground for depicting a particular object is therefore something revealed or manifested first as an image, icon, imago. Whereas the actual picture, a sketch, a painting, an engraving, a photograph, is the correlate of our perception, its founding image consists in a moment of intuition and vision. Hence, there is a Latin distinction, long-standing, between perceptual sight, visus, and intuition, visio. To close in on what we might mean by intuition, it helps to contrast it to perception. Perception is always determinative. It takes this particular thing, X, as this rock, or, uh, say, as a slate. This is a uh, drawing of slate by John Ruskin. Or it takes this plan as a thistle, or this face as that of Ambroise Vollard, Cezanne's portrait. Yet prior to seeing a given thing as this or that specific object, we must have already apprehended the phenomenon before us as being in fact susceptible of focused attention, indeed as positively calling for it. The great scientist and philosopher Michael Polanyi has drawn attention to what he called the tacit dimension or background awareness that always precedes any instance of focalized perception and subsequent causal analysis. As he writes, quote, we can use our formula only after we have made sense of the world to the point of asking questions about it and have established the bearing of the formula on the experience that they are designed to explain. It is some such tacit dimension or prejudgment that enables us to apprehend 
say, a rich and perplexing visual phenomenon as the kernel of insights as yet unrealized. In other words, as a potential conduit to further knowledge, which is to say, initially, as a problem. A problem, Polanyi remarks, designates a gap within a constellation of clues pointing towards something unknown. Intuition, then, marks the moment where we find ourselves in the presence of potentially significant entities, when we experience a slice of the visible world as being unconditionally given, as present to us, indeed as a present or gift. Prior to any determinative perception, there is the sheer event or advent, the epiphany of the visible, that invites us to tarry with what manifests itself to us, to linger over it, and in so doing, to open up the prospect of our progressing from intuition to cognition, from sight to insight. Corresponding to the distinctions I've just drawn, there is another one, which concerns two kinds or qualities of seeing, empirical sight, opsis or visa, and spiritual sight, visio, such as we encountered in patristic accounts of spiritual vision in Oregon, Gregory of Nyssa, or Maximus the Confessor. Empirical sight, or perception, is inherently appropriative and interested. It seeks to determine, indeed to predict, the import of what we perceive. It seeks to assert conceptual and epistemic dominion over its object. By contrast, the ancient doctrine of the spiritual senses, already hinted at in Plato's remark that all philosophy begins in wonder, originates in an entirely different stance. Not possessive, but maximally receptive. Not dominated by interest, but generously attentive. I note in passing that this distinction is also woven into the very fabric of ordinary language. Thus, quote, we take an interest in X, whereas we give our attention to X. The acting question is not instrumentalizing, but contemplative. Now, as cognitive and gestalt theory have shown time and again, interested sight will typically only see what it has already foreseen, predicted, and what already fits into a whole established and habituated conceptual scheme. Whereas perception, insofar as it is animated by interest, proves inherently selective, contemplative vision attends to the fullness, indeed the excess of the phenomenal world. It allows us, it allows visible things to manifest and unfold freely, and in so doing to invite the beholder to suspend and possibly transform the preconceptions with which we ordinarily approach the visible world. The introduction to my recent book opens with a discussion of Dostoevsky's novel, The Idiot, from 1869, a novel in which that contrast between covetous gazing and graced vision is worked out in a series of conversations about Hans Holbein's famous painting of the dead Christ. Finally, the quality of our gaze, of how we look at the world, interested or attentive, selectively perceptive or contemplatively immersed in the sheer fullness of the discourse, 
The quality of our gaze also sponsors two distinct concepts of the image, that of the idol, eidolon, and that of the true image, the vera icon. A covetous or domineering gaze, such as that of Dostoevsky's character Ragozin, conceives of the picture mainly as a commodity, or takes interest more or less only in how effectively it represents its object. Such a gaze appraises the visible image as a more or less effective case of simulation and illusion. The Greek word here would be phantasm. Hence, the picture functions as an idol of sorts, a charge that iconoclasts have leveled against representational art, especially in religious contexts, for three millennia. The iconoclast charge, and I should say it's not easily refuted, holds that my meters is inherently idolatry because it either denies or seeks to erase the ontological difference between the image and that of which it is the image, the prototype. All my meters, so the charge goes, originate in an illicit, indeed blasphemous desire to assert and replace its divine prototype. By contrast, iconic and contemplative vision responds to the visible as a gift and accepts it as a conduit towards further, towards its invisible source. Here, the image functions as a kind of intercession, a form of paraclesis, in that it mediates between the finite and the transcendent, the visible and the numinous. What argues in favor of this latter view is, I think, uh, an acceptance that the visible world is ontologically distinct from, but never the antagonist of its divine source. Such an understanding of the visible as a gift is premised on an account of creation as divine self-expression, for which reason God, we read in Genesis 1.31, saw that it was very good, bonum, as the Vulgate uh, translated. The visible and the invisible, then, are neither to be conflated nor are they to be construed as antagonists. Rather, the visible image is to be understood by analogy, which is to say, as a partial and time bound correlate of the divine logos made manifest. The visible image, in other words, does not betray its invisible source but stands in an enabling, non-identical relation to it. Far from being a counterfeit of the numinous, it serves as a conduit towards it. Whereas a phantasm, simulation, illusion, tends to absorb, distract, and overwhelm the beholder, often to the point of addiction, think of pornography or CGI-created scenes of violence, the icon positively focuses and orients the beholder towards an invisible source, while also instilling in her a sense of humble care and responsibility for visible creation as it is depicted. In passing, I note that since the early Renaissance, the dominant concept of the image in the West has aimed at maximal verisimilitude, either for instilling in the beholder an illusion of the real, or perhaps to serve uh, documentary purposes. Such as, for instance, in scientific drawings uh, that Goethe produced, and here I have one of his drawings, 
Or, for instance, the, in the uh, photorealist work of the pre-Raphaelites, such as Rosa Brett's painting from the 1860s called Thistle. Um, and I'll come back to this issue in a little bit. Now, both in my book and here again tonight, I propose that somewhat against the grain of this photorealist paradigm, this older conception of iconic vision has, in fact, quietly persisted all the way into our own time. There are many reasons for holding such a view, some religious in kind for those willing to entertain them, as well as others, more epistemological and indeed also ethical by nature. Yet even before such considerations come into view, there is the fact that to conceive of an image as mere illusion or as a simulacrum is to entangle oneself in a logically incoherent position. How so? We recall now that an act of pictorialization or of visual presentation, Darstellung, is never a case of conjuring. It does not generate the object that depicts from nothing. Rather, the fashioning of a picture originates, as I noted, in an anterior image, an intuitive vision, which furnishes the prompt for the eventual depiction. That said, the resulting presentation will never coincide outright with the object depicted. For if it were to do so, as for the example in the case of hyperstimulation, such as we find in 17th century Chonglu paintings, Here's an example, Andrea Pozzo's uh, painted dome in the Viennese Jesuit church. So this dome is actually not there. Uh, or for that matter, in three, uh, 3D street art, in cases of hypersimulation, we would no longer be able to distinguish between the picture and the object depicted. And as a result, we lose any coherent account of mimesis. Now, just as a picture can never be conflated, with the object it depicts. Neither must the two be construed as antagonists. For the visible image is always and essentially related um, to what it depicts, even as it can never fully coincide with it. In other words, for us to speak of an image at all, we must posit the relation of both difference and resemblance between the image and its prototype. I'll briefly turn here to a rather well-known uh, picture that uh, by René Magritte, Ceci n'est pas une from 1929, which makes the point in rather stark and perhaps seemingly obvious fashion. Yet to grasp the true point of Magritte's painting, we should remember that this depiction of a pipe, which is in fact not a pipe, only means anything because of the apparent resemblance between the image and that of which it is the image. Were we to place the same uh, inscription below, say, Piet Mondrian's composition in red, blue, and yellow from the year following, the same title would formally still be correct, but otherwise meaningless. Now, let me illustrate this dialectic in two instances. And here I turn now to the two close readings I wanted to do. And one, uh, the first one is of a rather famous icon. We take a gigantic leap back in time to approximately 560 AD and consider what may well be the most famous early religious image of them all, the Christ Pantocrator icon from St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai Peninsula. 
For it is here that the relation between the finite and the transcendent, between the picture of Christ's visible human and his invisible divine nature, are strikingly entwined. We begin with a trait frequently overlooked because largely invisible in digital or print reproduction. It has to do with the icon's material paint, known as encaustic. This is a medium in which colored pigments are suspended in heated beeswax, which yields a warm and luminous transparency, along with a soft, smooth texture, not unlike the appearance of human flesh. Specifically, the right half of Christ's face and body appear markedly naturalistic, with his right shoulder more prominent and fleshier, in contrast to its receding and downward sloping left counterpart. Furthermore, the drooping left eye and the raised eyebrow on the right individualize Christ's face in ways that still recall late Roman pictorial realism. Finally, there are some faint hints of architectural forms in the background, and uh, there's also, of course, the elaborately ornamented book of scripture that paradoxically Christ himself is already holding, presumably to suggest his divine kind of nature. These features also reflect the lingering influence of Roman realist aesthetics, as does the bulging fleshiness of Christ's right hand and his elaborate clothing of tunic and mantle. Still, vestiges of a pictorial verisimilitude only govern the right half of the icon. For as numerous commentators have pointed out, the icon's arguably most distinctive feature concerns the asymmetry of Christ's face, which is widely thought to reflect both the polarity of Christ as the agent of divine justice and mercy and his human and divine nature. Maximus Constant has recently offered a finely grained analysis of the icon's, quote, compelling duality of human mercy and divine judgment. As he insists, however, the icon's twofold aspect must not be construed as an antinomy, but instead as fusing two divergent uh, portrait types the naturalistic image of a frail young man and the colossal, almost non-human figure rendered in a style that is comparatively abstract, erratic, and symbolic. The Pantocrator icon thus presents us with a kind of bipolar structure informing God's self-manifestation, with an emphasis on the coming together in such a way that they continue to coexist. This is a point of some importance. Not yet defining the icon as a whole, though shaping its left otherworldly half, is an abstract flatness that in time will establish itself as the norm for Byzantine iconography. At which point, Constance notes, Christ's images became distilled to their most quintessentially iconographic posture, uh, uh, form and postures were progressively stabilized into set types. It would be an overstatement, however, to claim of early Byzantine icons that these, quote, new images resolutely break away from the mimetic portraits of Roman effigy. After all, the presence of Christ's distinct but not opposed human and divine natures in a single image, indeed in a single face, which fuses a realist with an abstract aesthetic, 
reflects one of the core tenets of Chalcedonian Christology. We find this both and logic further reinforced by Christ's gaze when we notice that the pupil on the left points ever so slightly upwards, whereas the one on the realist right side looks squarely at the beholder. The icon's creator was likely aware of the dilemma confronting those writing icons in the still unsettled aftermath of Schalzingen, you know, which the council from 451 AD, especially as regards depicting the crucifixion. For if such images depicted Jesus with open eyes, they risk casting doubt on his physical death. Conversely, if they depicted him with eyes closed, as is the case with another 8th century icon, also from St. Catherine, they risk calling into question his divine nature, which naturally could not be thought to suffer corporeal death. To understand this icon, and therefore to grasp its paradigmatic value for a theology of images, we must are uh, therefore are be on guard against overemphasizing the dual nature of Christ as rendered visible in this icon. Rather than construing the icon's asymmetries as evidence for the production of theological art by proponents of the ultimately rejected two natures theology, we do well to heed Cyril of Alexandria's caveat, who says, and I quote, who urges us, quote, not to divide the one Christ into two by picturing a two-faced Emmanuel. In fact, to know the two natures of the one Christ separately is just as impossible as to grasp the hypostatic union merely by means of our physical sight. What the Pantocrator icon asks of is to see how Christ's two distinct natures are manifestly unified in the person or face, the prosopon, of the one Christ whom the icon places before us. Consequently, a different kind of seeing is required, one neither fungible with propositional knowing, nor reducible to a purely optical event. Drawing on a long line of Hellenistic writers, Cyril thus mobilizes the idea of spiritual or contemplative seeing, the Greek term is theoria, from which our concept of theory, of course, derives, a form of contemplative seeing that emphasizes the contiguity of the visual with the verbal. That is, how what may in time be known must first have been mediated for us in some visible image. Conversely, the import of what has visibly manifested itself can only ever be fulfilled in the medium of the word. The very fact that we wish for the deliverances of our intuition to be fulfilled in articulate speech also tells us that the act of seeing is latently conceptual, a case of active uptake rather than passive intake. Emphasizing the essential complementarity of icon and logos in contemplation, Cyril thus notes, quote, the line that separates, that the line that separates word and image is erased, and the difference between them collapses. No longer then is the image conceptualized as a copy or duplicate of the real. Instead, 6th and 7th century iconographers knew that for the icon to mediate Christ's inexhaustible presence, both 
the non-identity and the inseparability of his two natures, of the visible and the invisible, had understood as distinct but complementary, had to be inscribed within the icon itself. Rather than being presented as the ex post facto visualization of an already established theological concept, the icon seeks to make manifest the reality of the incarnation in an intuitively accessible image. Yet it does this with one crucial qualification, namely that to contemplate the icon and fully internalize the presence it mediates is an open-ended process in which seeing and knowing are no more in opposition than image and word, or indeed Christ's human and divine natures. Now, some 900 years later, the precarious balance struck by the St. Catherine icon appears to be faulty. And now I turn to the second of the images I wanted to discuss in some depth. For a number of reasons, socioeconomic, spiritual, as well as theological, the new medium of oil-on-wood panel painting uh, that rises rapidly to prominence in the early 15th century shows how both spiritual vision and the function of religious art more generally is on the verge of undergoing a stark change. Thus, the increased availability of panel paintings and woodcuts enhances their appeal as quasi-spiritual tokens to be acquired for private devotion. We are now entering a form of a, a kind of socioeconomic realm in which um, uh, small-scale panels, oil, typically using secretive oil on wood panels, are uh, there to focus the attention of a person in their home as they pray. That the so-called under the devotional image, and we'll look at one of them in a moment. The increased availability of panel paintings and woodcuts enhances their appeal as quasi-spiritual tokens to be acquired for private devotion. As one critic notes, individual citizens did not want an image different from the public one, so much as they needed one that would belong to them personally and speak to them in person. The result is a shift from iconic spiritual vision to mere pictorial sight. I note also in passing that the image in this new context is notably disembedded. It migrates out of the church into the private home. It is disembedded from the liturgy. The result is a shift from uh, iconic spiritual vision to pictorial sight. As the role of corporeal imagery in spiritual life gains in importance, this new type of devotional image now serves widely in private households not least as a mnemonic device, assisting the, the viewer who might be struggling to recall particular scenes from scripture or at least struggle to visualize them. Increasingly, that is, biblical narrative and its truth claims appear, uh, appear to depend on being reinforced by material pictures. A growing investment in painting, less as a conduit towards religious meaning, then as tangible evidence of it, now works in favor of a realist conception of art that had long been associated with sculpture and that after the 1430 is also reflected in painting's new emphasis on a very similar three-dimensional 
form of uh, visualization. As seeing came to define believing, the stance of the 15th century viewer undergoes a fundamental shift away from devout, prayerful attention and toward a highly self-conscious appraisal of the way that religious motifs are given realistic expression in the painted image. For an example, let us consider uh, young von Eyck's Virgin and Child with, um, with, canon, with the canon Wanderpeil. This is a painting from 1434 to about 1436. In this painting, the act of devotion and prayer centered on the image of the Madonna has itself become the painting's central motif, which is to say the devotional vision that is both depicted in and uh, the devotional vision is depicted in and authenticated by the painted image. Set within an imaginary ecclesial space and the unique choreography of figures placed within it, Van Eyck's painting combines extraordinary technical artistry of the kind that appeals emphatically to the senses. Thus, the painting's background is enlivened both by a pallid light visible through the milky diaphanous windows in the background and uh, also the spatial recesses, both of which they, uh, which at once stimulate but also frustrate the beholder's visual curiosity. Perhaps most striking about the choreography of persons in the foreground is the complete absence of eye contact among any of them. Thus, the devout and gravely ill canon Vanderpel, clutching his prayer book, has just removed his eyeglasses in a gesture intended to present him as, quote, fundamentally disconnected from the perceptible world, as Eric Rothstein put. While suggesting his transition, either intended or momentarily achieved, from material perception to spiritual vision, the removal of his eyeglasses also alludes to the fallibility of the senses more generally. Likewise, none of the other figures appear to make eye contact with the sole exception of the infant Christ, whose searching look is firmly trained on Van der Perl. Van Eyck's painting features two distinct plateaus of meaning that operate in virtual simultaneity, although I would argue very uneasily so. There is first the painting's realistic plateau, to call it that, involving three men, St. Donation, patron saint of the Canon Church in Bruges, and here in the left side of the painting presented in full bishop's regalia, earnestly appraising the canon, who in turn seems awkwardly placed next to his name saint, St. George. The choreography of these three figures already suggests unresolved tensions between the church penitent and the church militant. Now, the other plateau, which is not situated within ordinary historical time and space, concerns the Christian eschaton of the church triumphant, here embodied by the virgin and child whose presence ought to be, and perhaps actually is, the true focus of the dying canon spiritual vision. Now, the emphatically realist presentation of the Madonna and Child, uh, of, of Madonna and Child as the painting's central motif, invites the beholder 
to authenticate at the level of empirical sight what the penitent cannot see or aspires to see in inward contemplation. Brett Rothstein views uh, Van der Peel as, quote, quite clearly in the company of the surrounding group, as confirmed by the visual detail of St. George's shadow falling across the canon's shoulders. Van Eyck cleverly implies that, and this is still Rothstein's uh, reading, that the Virgin, Child, Saints, and Van der Peel are nothing less than physically present before us. On the other hand, Rothstein's concession that the canon does not see the group around him at all naturally complicates whatever spiritual message this kind of pictorial realism is meant to reinforce. After all, here's the question. How can we speak of pictorial realism in a case where the painting places before us in spatial temporal simultaneity a 15th century canon two saints who died more than a millennium earlier, and the Virgin of Christ. Instead, and more plausibly, we might conclude that the painting's stunning simulation of three-dimensional ecclesiastical space is intended as a perceptual crutch of sorts, designed to assist the viewer who undoubtedly struggles to reconcile the images, the pages conspicuous verisimilitude with its theological message. That message being the spiritual communion of saints, virgin and child, in which the canon seeks to participate. Not perceptually, but in spiritual vision. A more detailed account of an Ike's technical wizardry than can be offered here tonight would further show that the medium's unprecedented illusionism actually risks obscuring the theological foundations and the spiritual purpose of this type of devotional image. Indeed, Van Eyck's stress on pictorial realism may well attest to our, the beholders, post-lapsarian condition, which necessarily relies on pictures as a consequence of our spiritual blindness. Yet in that case, Rothstein's conclusion that, quote, we respond to the saint as though he is present before us, would appear precisely the wrong one to draw. For to the extent that the viewer of this realist painting is enthralled, indeed trapped, within Van Eyck's illusionist space, she will thereby also be barred from attaining the spiritual vision to which Van der Pale, having taken off his eyeglasses, clearly aspires. Precisely the hypnotic power of an Ike's pictorial realism prevents his viewers from remembering that the vision to which they ought to aspire can only be attained if they too remove their glasses. All this then suggests that the rise of a new aesthetic of realism within late medieval religious culture risks subverting the spiritual vision which it is meant to authenticate. For once the perfection of visual illusion, three-dimensional space, material texture, and symbolic detail has been established as the overriding artistic objective, the painted image is bound to distract from and ultimately supervene on the mystic idea of a strictly anaconic spiritual vision. 
Whereas Bonaventure, two centuries earlier, had conceived such vision as a narrative sequence leading from three-dimensional visible remnants, vestigia, towards the anachronic visio beatifica, Van Eyck's painting implicitly frames the visible and the invisible as locked in some kind of epistemological competition. They seem to compete for the same space. Henceforth, religious painting situates the devotional and liturgical practices of socioeconomically distinct individuals in three-dimensional space with their attire and other symbolic details attesting to their worldly and temporal condition. With the telos of mystic vision rapidly fading from sight, realistic painting aspires to maximize the visibility of what it depicts by foregrounding its powers of illusion. As a result, late medieval devotional painting presents itself or strikes us as a conflicted medium at once promising and obstructing access to the numinous and necessarily ineffable truth of Christianity. Once again, that is, the visible image reveals both its power and its ambivalence, being precariously suspended between the iconic and the idolatry, between what Jean-Luc Marion identifies as two manners of being, not two classes of being. In the case of the idol, the beholder's hermeneutic activity is wholly circumscribed by the visible image, such that whatever meaning is finally attributed to the painting Im painted image must admit of verification by some visible detail. A logic of strict imminence here begins to supplant the earlier mystical conception, according to which the image can only ever mediate, but never outright capture an essentially apophatic message. The result is an apparent opposition between the devotional image and imageless devotion, between the image as preliminary scaffolding uh, or, as the, or as the indispensable catalyst for attaining the truth in the form of vision. Or as Michael Hamburger puts it as a question, um, Jeffrey Hamburger uh, formulates the central question, were the visions and he is referring here to 15th century religious painting. Were the visions still inspired by art or the art by the vision? It is this question, rarely answered in conclusive and coherent fashion after 1500, that has vexed theologians, visual artists, and poets ever since. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you very much.